Hey everyone, it's your host of See Jurassic Right, Stephen Ray Morris here, just dropping in to say, I hope you've been enjoying all the new episodes in 2023 and 2024 so far. There are new interviews with filmmakers, musicians, scientists, the screenwriter of Land Before Time, audio essays about the rich history of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World franchise, and all the news about the upcoming animated show Jurassic World Chaos Theory and the as-of-yet untitled Jurassic World sequel coming next summer. I really need your help supporting the show right now, and you can do that by leaving a tip and or giving a monthly follow on Patreon, patreon.com slash There are $1 and $5 tiers, but more is coming. Sharing the show, giving five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts, and liking and commenting on social, at Stephen Ray Morris on Instagram and Twitter, goes a long way to help boosting the show's visibility again online in this new era. I'm an independent podcaster and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. My name is Lacey, and um, I am from Texas, so I just wanted to tell you my Jurassic Park story. Let me start from the beginning. (laughs) My life literally started with Jurassic Park. Um, So my mom always tells the story about how she was reading the novel Jurassic Park when she went into labor with me because she wanted to finish the book before the movie came out. And the movie came out June 11th, 1993, and I was born June 10th, 1993. So as soon as I was born and as soon as my mom was out of the hospital, literally the day the movie came out, she took me to the theater and watched the movie. She tells the story about how I was on, I was a little newborn baby on her lap, like on a pillow, and when it got too scary, she remembers looking down and seeing her hands over my head because she was so scared. So that's 
that's that's my introduction to the world <laughs> is Jurassic Park. Filled with on fright, see Jurassic right, live in ember light, see Jurassic right, see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, see Jurassic right, see Jurassic Park. Welcome back to See Jurassic Right a podcast about Jurassic Park and you. I'm your host, Stephen Ray Morris. Today's episode is all about the vibrant verisimilitude of author Michael Crichton, the writer of the Jurassic Park novel, and he helped write the film script too. That lovely voicemail that opened this episode is from listener Lacey, and I can't help but think that her mom is the coolest. Now, I have read over 10 of Michael Crichton's novels, starting with The Lost World, his Jurassic Park sequel, at probably too young of an age, uh, my dad crossed out the swear words in in uh, pen in my original hardcover copy. I feel very lucky I got to meet the complex figure before he passed away in 2008. So, thanks to a little online sleuthing, I was informed that the event that I met Michael Crichton at took place on February 23, 2003 at the L.A. Public Library. Prey, his latest novel, had been released the November prior, and he was doing a benefit for the library, speaking on various topics and reading passages from the nanobot-filled thriller. I was 16, and my dad treated me to the event as a surprise. At least that's how I remember it. What I don't remember is anything Michael Crichton talked about during the first part of the evening. I just remember him being very tall. Then, after the talk, we all gathered into a mess hall to have dinner. It was a benefit, after all. And while we munched on generic steak or chicken and mashed potatoes, people were slowly making their way to chat with him, snap a photo, or even get something signed. Nearing the end of the evening, with my father's insistence, I got up to ask him a question, all on my own. I was definitely an anxious and shy kid, still am, but this was my favorite author. I walked over to the table and I found my way in. But I feel like he probably turned away from the adults to speak to me because I think I was the youngest person there. I said hello and handed him a copy of Prey, and he asked me what my name was. And as if to either fill the silence or hurry me along, he asked if I had any questions. Now, in my mind, I didn't bring a copy of Jurassic Park to sign because I think the benefit stated that he was only going to sign the book he was currently promoting. Makes sense. Anyway, I had already read Prey, uh, a cutout review of the... (laughs) A cutout review of the book from People Magazine sat in its pages as a bookmark, So I asked him why he decided to write the book in first-person perspective as opposed to third-person, like all of his other books before Prey. He merely replied with a quiet nod and a little bit of tenderness that he wanted to try something different, and that was that. I can't for the life of me read what he signed in my book to this day, but I felt satisfied meeting one of my favorite authors, and that he was very nice to me, and very tall. The short version of Michael Crichton's bio is that he was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1942, and he had an insatiable curiosity. After graduating from Harvard with a degree in biological anthropology, he hated the English department. He enrolled in Harvard Medical School. That's when he began publishing dime store detective novels under pen names like John Lang and Jeffrey Hudson. 
Disenchanted with the medical community, he never acquired a license to practice medicine despite graduating. With the success of his first novel, The Andromeda Strain, in 1969, he knew which path to pursue. Inspired by his daughter's obsession with dinosaurs, Jurassic Park's origins evolved from a screenplay Crichton wrote in 1983 about the cloning of a pterodactyl, a flying reptile. When he settled on a theme park setting, the original drafts were from the perspective of a child visiting the park, but it wasn't until he changed it to an adult perspective that it gained traction and became a huge bestseller when it was published in 1990. He followed suit with writing his only sequel, The Lost World, in 1995, persuaded by director Steven Spielberg and audience's adoration of the world he created in the original. So, with the majority of the podcast today, I wanted to take a look at a few key passages from the Jurassic Park novel and one passage from The Lost World that sparked my imagination and the imagination of my guests. I sat down to chat with a very funny comedian and Secret Masters podcast host, Jared Logan, and my friend Sae Young Kang, a market researcher for video games. Both of them have unique and interesting perspectives not only on having read the book before the movie in their youth, but also on topics like Crichton's love-hate relationship with science, the book's detail-oriented practicality when it comes to dealing with dinosaur disasters, and why Jurassic Park might just be a modern fable for scientists. Oh, and past guest Christina Nielsen and upcoming guest Omar Najam stopped by as well. Let's dive in. What's funny is, even though English is my primary language now, I first started reading Michael Crichton in Korean because I read the book, the first Jurassic Park book, before I ever saw the movie. And it must have been when I was about seven or six. One of my cousins or aunts or uncles had the Jurassic Park book in Korean. So I read it because I was just like bored one day and I would always go like rummaging through other people's bookshelves back then. So I read him in in, uh, in Korean and then later, like maybe junior high or high school, I kind of read it again in English. And it's kind of amazing how when I read it as like a little kid, it was all about just like imagination, fantasy, the idea of seeing these creatures. But then later when I read it in English and I was older, it was much more about like, oh, like perils of business and like (laughs) science overreaching. So it was really interesting to read, have different points of view at different points in my life and happen to be in different languages. (laughs) Michael Crichton, I was so excited to read when I was in fifth grade so I might have been like 10 years old and that would have been 1990 and I remember very clearly I was reading him already around well, 9091 for certain because I think the movie Jurassic Park came out in 1994 93 93 okay well I had read Jurassic Park a couple years before that nice and I remember so clearly seeing it on the shelf of a book fair did you ever do book fairs in school? Yeah, yeah, we had the Scholastic. Exactly, yeah. it was that. And so uh, I was sitting there on the shelf and I had no idea. I kind of skipped over it because it was like an adult book and I wanted probably a book about like a rock and roll Dracula or something like that. But then I ended up uh, I ended up through my father or somebody uh, reading it later and being like, I remember that. And then I, I quickly after that read Congo, Eaters of the Dead, my father was a fan of the Terminal Man. No, I'm. I, I stopped. At, I, I did. I did the the late '80s uh, 
no, no, 76 Eaters of the Dead. So I read Eaters of the Dead, I read Congo, I read Sphere, and I read Jurassic Park. Um, should we dive into some passages? Let's do L- it. Some brief passages. So I kind of picked out like what I almost think are like the key, kind of the key points that I think Crichton was talking about in his book and specifically related to Jurassic Park, where right at the very beginning, you know, he says again to this verisimilitude, he's like, in this commercial climate, it is probably inevitable that a company as ambitious as international genetics technologies of Palo Alto would arise. It is equally unsurprising that the genetic crisis it created would go unreported. After all, InGen's research was conducted in secret. The actual incident occurred in the most remote region of Central America, and fewer than 20 people were there to witness it. Of those, only a handful survived. I'm, I'm such a sucker for, like you said, the framing story. And for me, this absolutely sets the tone of that, like, kind of um, sinisterness that I really enjoy about the Jurassic Park book. The idea that, like, from the get-go, you know, this was due to a merge of science and business interests. Things went wrong, but the bad guy succeeded in covering up. Somehow knowing that it all ends ends badly before you ever get into the story really sets the mood for me and kind of how I interpret the rest of the happening, you know? Yeah, that that's really, yeah, that's really beautifully said. It's sort of, yeah, there's, you, you know that this is, yeah, this won't, this will not end well. So buckle mm-hmm. in and, and maybe it'll allow you to think about the sort of larger, you know, the larger concerns rather than, oh, are these people going to survive or not? It's like, yeah, there's no need to be there. He doesn't have the same kind of, you know, he's not thinking about suspense in the same way as, say, somebody like Steven Spielberg is, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because could you imagine the movie opening like this with like a like a t- <laughs> like on a computer screen, like, you know, like, yeah, only a handful survive. Look at this beautiful park entrance and the island. Yeah. Oh, my God. And just the spe- specificity of, like, International Genetic Technologies, Inc. of Palo Alto. Like, like <laughs> you, he absolutely didn't need to include that this um, company was founded in Palo Alto or is based in Palo Alto. But just a little bit of that, like, makes you think about, you know, like... Silicon Valley and back when the internet bubble burst and like are they making these same types of like um greedy or uh, over ambitious like like I don't know it's just like there's so much wrapped up in there in such a simple detail I love that and you know what it immediately reminds me of how Lovecraft opens every one of his stories every Lovecraft story starts with you may not believe the circumstances that I witnessed on the night of March 5th, and you may call me insane. Is it not, however, believable that a man such as Winfred Bailey or whatever, is? it's always like kind of this, um, yeah, the circumstances were mysterious, but I will tell you the true story, and this is, you must believe me because these facts are true. Um uh, at the Mountains of Madness, all that stuff. At the Mountains of Madness is actually a very Crichton-y story. They oh, all I never kind thought of, of start like... out that way with this sort of like testament about like, 
you know. Yeah. These are the facts of the case, even though most people think that they're lies. Yeah, it's interesting that as as a writing technique, you're sort of like appealing to authority. Like you like they don't just jump you right into a story. It's like, no, before I tell you this story, let me tell you that it's true. It's so fun to make your story feel true. You know, Dracula does that too. It's all letters and, 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 and even newspaper articles. Oh, wow. And you're kind of like, you're not just hearing some writer win John about his, his person he made up. You are looking at documents that were found, you know? And that really just adds so much to it. So yeah, I love that technique. That's, That's really cool. Yeah, in um in the Andromeda strain, every like like the beginning, it's like a case file. It's like like the the facts here that lie in therein kind yeah. of Yeah. Yeah. Um That's a scary one, the Andromeda strain. Yeah. The movie actually is pretty cool. You know, Michael Crichton was worked for so long was making movies about his books immediately. Yeah. And looked like a movie star. And and a big part of Jurassic Park I realized in rereading it was that how much of um how much of Ian Malcolm is like Dr. Ian Malcolm is kind of like a mouthpiece for like his philosophy. Oh uh, yeah. You got to write the character that lets you just kind of walk into the book and tell people what's going on. Yeah, here here's here's what's really going on. Yeah. So, another quote that I like is cuz again the the book Jurassic Park has all this like there's a lizard that washes up on shore and children are mm-hmm. getting bit and the lawyers are all like, "Uh, they're buying too many computers and what's, you know, <laughs> like what's why are all the why are all the plans for all the island buildings changed, you know? Like what's going yeah. it's like there's much more of this kind of like yeah, mystery going on about not about the dinosaurs, but it's just about the park itself. Mm-hmm. And so in this scene, uh, this bit of like lizard, quote unquote, that was found off the coast of Costa Rica or on the coast, you know, whatever on the coast of Costa Rica that bit a little girl, you know, a scene that was later reused for the Lost World movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but this chunk of lizard gets sent to a lab and these two technicians are looking at it and mm-hmm. deciphering it. And so one of the scientists is, uh, you know, Alice Levine said, if this is a dinosaur, Richard, it could be a big deal. It's not a dinosaur. Has anyone checked it? No, Stone said. Well, take it to the Museum of Natural History or something, Alice Levine said. You really should. I'd be embarrassed. You want me to do it for you, she said. No, I don't. You're not going to do anything? Nothing at all. He put the baggie back in the freezer and slammed the door. It's not a dinosaur. It's a lizard. And whatever it is, it can wait until Dr. Simpson gets back from Borneo to identify it. That's final, Alice. This lizard's not going anywhere. Like, I that whole journey of that, like, the little girl playing on the beach, getting far away from her parents, finding the tracks, her following the tracks, we know it's a dinosaur, but she thinks it's a bird. And then biting the, uh, it's a comfy, right? Yeah, yeah. That bites her. Yeah. And then like the travel of the like lizard specimen and how people treat it so callously. Like that's one of the scenes, I guess it's multiple scenes, but quote unquote scenes like that so stands out for me. And it's memorable from reading Jurassic Park. Like just the idea of he, balances the like audience knows something the characters don't so well where it's not unknowing it's just enough to be like like 
like adrenaline inducing and like the way the scientists like are like oh we'll just do it tomorrow or like I don't want to do this or like such petty concerns when we know what's at stake which is like the dinosaurs are off the island (laughs) you know oh it's so good I love it so much and I it's just the feeling of it's everyday humans with normal petty concerns that are all along the path that enable a larger crisis to spread and grow and get unmanageable, right? That's how things happen in real life, too. Yeah, you're so right. It's Jurassic Park, the book isn't necessarily about one person turning off the power and then shit hits the fan. It's sort of all these, it's not even about the park itself. It's about how all these large it's about how all these little things add up to this crisis that eventually happens and mm-hmm. how we are all kind of passing the buck along yeah um without even knowing our the full implications like you're saying like there's no they have no idea what they're they have no idea that there are dinosaurs alive on this planet again and they literally mm. just look the other way and don't even notice and it's like kind of like oddly applicable i've been thinking a lot lately about as a liberal u.s citizen living under the trump presidency i'm reading and consuming a lot of like political media content and discussions and thinking about it but then i also think like but what am i doing to make a difference or how am i actually engaging in like civic-minded behavior it's kind of the same question they always ask, like, Germans living under, like, Nazi regime, like, but what did you do to speak out against it while it was happening? And it's always like, well, we didn't think it was, like, going where it went, you know, like, it's it's so applicable to not just, like, science or crime, just in everyday life, I think there's stuff that we know that we're not, um maybe being as active as we should be in like addressing something or fighting something or being cognizant. I don't know. Yeah. And, and the big part of Jurassic Park, I think is how that those kind of failures Mm -hmm. add up. But I thought it was interesting that the, you know, we, we think of the way that the dinosaurs were introduced in the, in the movie, which is like, it's this kind of like like circus display of like, look, here's the biggest animal I have. Like, yeah, eat eat it, you know, scientists. Like I, you know, Hammond's like I proved you wrong, but in the um, in the book, uh, the lawyer Gennaro he says Gennaro was speechless. He had known all along what to expect. He had known about it for years, but he had somehow never believed it would happen. And now he was shocked in his silence. The awesome power of the new genetic technology, which he had formerly considered to be just so many words and an overwrought sales pitch, the power suddenly came to him. These animals were so big. They were enormous, big as a house, and so many of them. Actual damn dinosaurs. Just as real as you could want. Gennaro thought, we are going to make a fortune on this place. A fortune. He hoped to God the island was safe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you're right. Like, Crichton, like, uh, his whole deal is, like, uh, he, he makes sure the lawyers get eaten, you know? Yeah. He makes sure the fat cat gets eaten. Like, he, he just takes down all the people. I mean, if I was going to get real political, the people who I mean, profit off of 
others instead of creating their own stuff. Yeah, no, he was. That's big not. On that. That, if I have a lawyer friend listening, you're garbage, and I'm letting you know through this Michael Crichton podcast, you are saying that you should be eaten by dinosaurs or some other cruel fate. I believe that you should be eaten alive by by prehistoric lizards. Sorry, that's what I think of all lawyers. They all deserve that. Um, That's definitely a little bit what Michael Crichton was tapping, I think. Yeah. I think he had a lot of animosity for people like that. Yeah. That, that you know, opportunists and uh, and capitalists and people like that. Yeah. Everybody, nobody comes out looking good in his books. Yeah. Other than Ian Malcolm, who's right all along. The pure, the pure scientist of pure mathematics. And then I just thought this passage was really funny where... Um, so this is the kind of scene in the movie where, like, the you know, where the Nedry, um, you know, starts to shut off all the power or whatever. Yeah. And it's just the way that Michael Crichton describes it, um, you know, it's the idea. It's like, okay, that they've turned off the fences and it's like, oh, the dinosaurs could get out. And, all, all, you know, you, your biggest fear has come true. But the way that uh, Michael Crichton, um, the way that Crichton reads it is just so, and it's 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 just very different than the way that the movie did it, which is that's right. Uh, Ray Arnold said the animals can get out. Now Arnold lit a cigarette. Probably nothing will ever happen, but you never know. And then Muldoon started towards the door. I better drive out and bring the people in these two land cruisers just in case Muldoon went downstairs. He wasn't really worried about the fences going down. Most of the dinosaurs had been in their paddocks for nine months or more and had brushed up against the fences more than once with notable results. Muldoon knew how quickly animals learn to avoid shock stimuli. You could even train a laboratory pigeon with just two or three stimulation events, so it was unlikely that the dinosaurs would now approach the fences. Muldoon was more concerned about what the people in the cars would do. Um, that's uh, that's really kind of a brilliant kind of a passage because I think that like the easy way to play that if you're the writer is, oh my god, the fences are down. But his entire um. And I think that's a little bit how it's handled in the movie. But, you know, Crichton's entire thesis with the book is how people trust their safeguards they've put in place too much. And here you have the animal expert, and he trusts the animals more than the people. Yeah. That's really kind of amazing. I love that. that. I liked that passage a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it was very – it's just more evocative of this kind of gruff reality that he kind of creates in his worlds where all these scientists are very like weary and regimented yeah. right and 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 yeah they they even though they're working with extraordinary things it's not extraordinary to them anymore so yeah like you say they're weary so the next one i wanted to read i wanted to skip ahead did you read the books um i read part of the book and it was recently and I'll tell you why I can't believe I haven't or that I hadn't um I it was one of those things where you almost forget because it just becomes you know you're like oh well I know Jurassic Park like you know and so I but I, I constantly remembered that and I knew people in college who loved it both um both just cr- like Michael Crichton's works in general and then Jurassic Park where they were obsessed with it but I just didn't always forgot to to do it and so I had a student actually recently talk to me we were talking about Jurassic Park and she was saying that as a kid when she read it the one thing that 
almost terrified her was this scene when the T-Rex is swimming and it's described as moving like a crocodile. And I was like, I have to read it. <laughs> that that was what sold me immediately and reminded me, like, you need to read it. So I ordered it on Amazon immediately and I started reading it. Um, it's it's great. It's It really is. And it's 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 one of those things that as, as I rewatch Jurassic Park that I can go back and appreciate the way that they've translated the story into a film. Because a lot of times, a lot of people feel disappointed. And so far, I'm not. I understand the choices that were made. And yeah, I think that that's interesting to be able to see, especially when I'm, I'm older, being able to see that. It's funny that you chose the, that a scene that stuck out to you to make you want to read the book of this movie that you love is a scene that's not even in the right. movie. I think it, I just think that that description was so striking. Lex coughed loudly, explosively. In Tim's ears, the sound echoed across the water like a gunshot. The tyrannosaur yawned lazily and scratched behind its ear with its hind foot, just like a dog. It yawned again. It was groggy after its big meal and woke up slowly. On the boat, Lex was making little gargling sounds. Lex, shut up, Tim said. I can't help it, she whispered, and then she coughed again. Grant rowed hard, moving the raft powerfully into the center of the lagoon. On the shore, the Tyrannosaur stumbled to its feet. I couldn't help it, Timmy, Lex shrieked miserably. I couldn't help it. Shh. Grant was rowing as fast as he could. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We're far enough away. He can't swim. Of course you can swim, you little idiot, Tim shouted at her. (laughs) On the shore, the Tyrannosaur stepped off the dock and plunged into the water. It moved strongly into the lagoon after that. Well, how should I know, she said. Everybody knows Tyrannosaurs can swim. It's all in the books. Anyway, all reptiles can swim. Snakes can't. Of course snakes can, you idiot. (laughs) Settle down, Grant said. Hold on to something. Grant was watching the Tyrannosaur, noticing how the animal swam. The Tyrannosaur was now chest deep in the water, but could hold its big head high above the surface. Then Grant realized the animal wasn't swimming. It was walking because moments later, only the very top of the head, the eyes and nostrils protruded above the surface. By then it looked like a crocodile, and it swam like a crocodile, swinging its big tail back and forth, so water churned behind it. Behind the head, Grant saw the hump of the back and the ridges along the length of the tail, as it occasionally broke the surface. Exactly like a crocodile, he thought unhappily. The biggest crocodile in the world. Uh, I I just like, he does such a great job balancing how much visual detail he gives you. I always feel like it's just enough to paint like a really cinematic picture in my head of what I'm supposed to see, but... Not so much that I get bored or it feels flowery, right? So I love the part about like the ridges and the hump of the back and that's what's breaking the surface. Like you can see it. You can see that it would look like a crocodile. You know, you don't see the whole of the crocodile lens. And, oh, it's so good. Um There's just like an element of absurdity too of these kids arguing, you yeah, know. When as- <laughs> When they're in mortal danger. It's like, um, let me know if I'm wrong, but Lex in the book is more like kind of annoying and useless and like causes trouble more than is responding properly. Right. Compared to the movie. Yeah, it was. It was sort of a thing I read like in, in Don Shea and Jody Duncan's behind the scenes of Jurassic Park when they were scripting the film. They were mm-hmm. sort of like, well, if we're going to do this. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style movie we can't have two kids that are kind of useless you know we sort of mm-hmm. have to give them stuff to do and spielberg was also wanted to sort of provide more empowerment for for the kids and lex especially mm-hmm. so she swapped their ages she made lex older gave mm. her this computer thing because like tim was the one who liked dinosaurs and was good at computers and lex right. was just kind of bored and liked baseball you know Mm-hmm. And so Spielberg kind of evened out the two roles because he obviously wanted them to have a function in his version of this story. But yeah, so that was a very long answer. But yeah, Lex is younger and kind of complains a lot. That's so upsetting because I, I think I re- like, you know, when you're a young girl reading, I don't know that. Does, yeah, sci-fi. I would say this comes with sci-fi, right? Sci-fi books or yeah. speculative fiction books. You want to imagine yourself as being in the story, but if the only one that's even close to you, which she wasn't that close because there's not really people of color, like in the main characters, I don't think. No. Um, yeah. So it's like for the person closest to me to be the most useless, annoying person, even if it's meant to convey how kids would actually react in a high, high stress, high stakes situation, it's so discouraging. It's, I'm glad they made the changes for the movie. Yeah. This passage of... Is this a Ian Malcolm? This is an Ian Malcolm passage where um, this is... Because in the book, he his he's basically just becomes like a heroin addict by the end of the, the book because he just got his leg all stripped. Oh, right. And then he's just been... He's just like... Chaos theory are just these like heroin, like horse tranquilizer induced ramblings <laughs> and stuff. And, you know, where it's just John Hammond, like, ugh, like rolling his eyes, like, you know, but almost more at the idea that, like, you know, this park is all falling apart. And, like, this dude is being like, I told you so. I told you yeah, so. Yeah, and I'm kind of stuck like, with the worst possible guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he says right here, he says, we are witnessing the end of a, the scientific era. Science, like other outmoded systems, is destroying itself. As it gains in power, it proves itself incapable of handling the power. Because things are going very fast now. 50 years ago, everyone was gaga over the atomic bomb. That was power. No one could imagine anything more. Yet the yet a bare decade after the bomb, we began to have genetic power. And the genetic power is far more potent than atomic power. And it will be in everyone's hands. It will be in 
kits for backyard gardeners, experiments for school children, cheap labs for terrorists and dictators. And that'll force everyone to ask the same question. What should I do with my power? Which is the very question science says it cannot answer. So what'll happen, Ellie says. Malcolm shrugged. A change. What kind of change? All major changes are like death, he said. You can't see to the other side until you're there. And he closed his eyes. The poor man, Hammond said, shaking his head. Malcolm sighed. Do you have any idea, he said, how unlikely it is that you or any of us will get off this island alive? <laughs> I think a lot of, oh, well, see, that ends, I, I'm looking at your copy and it ends, it ends a whole part of the book, yeah. which is like, you know, it's like now part six starts. Yeah. And also, it's a perfect way to, to end like a, a section. But also, I think a lot of that survives into the film, right? Yeah. I think they just add, the Pirates of the Caribbean don't come alive and start eating everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the whole nuclear power thing. And, you know, now, if he were writing it, he would talk about media. Media is now gone muck and is eating itself. It's literally at war with itself yeah. right now. So Yeah, I yeah, know. It's interesting because in, um, I don't know if you've read, um, oh, my God, I can't remember the name of it, uh, Airframe. Airframe is a really great book for talking about media because it's all about this airplane like near crash like an airline incident that goes wrong and it's kind of based off of a couple of real events and it's the whole book is about reconstructing what happened on the plane and then the me and then the different companies that war with each other to try and stifle what the representation of what actually happened. Wow. And so it's kind of all about, yeah. it's it's all about kind of media and news reporters and, and the way that information is leaked from like the manufacturers of the plane to the, the distributors of the plane. So, the, the, so he gets his corporate espionage theme in there too. Yeah. Yeah. But like it. But yeah, the perception, they all want to rash them on it uh, to be their story. That's yeah. that's really cool. I would say, yeah, because that was a very late Crichton read for me. That was definitely into my adult life. But yeah, I, I like to me, that quote of like, it's like a, it's like that. I feel like that last passage sums up Crichton so well of like, I'm going to scare you with like all of this, you know, philosophical talk and then also be like oh yeah and then we're not going to get off this island alive physically it's like he kind of lives in both worlds of like i was a doctor and i was familiar with human bodies and stuff but then also the mind of like as a society are we gonna are we gonna make it or not right he can he can take the role of the the specialist but also step outside yeah of that role because yeah. he he was a doctor who didn't want to be a doctor yeah. Interesting. And that's why that was one of my questions. I was like, does Michael Crichton like science or believe in it when so many of his books are him being like, this is a flawed system? I think that he's conflicted about it. And I think that that's probably you'd find all the great writers or artists. What they're talking about is something that they haven't decided yet. You know, comedians, I can speak to that because yeah. I because I do that stand up comedians. They will often say things like, this is this, this is what it is, you know, because that's an effective performance tool or oration tool. But I think most of the time, if they're being honest or if you watch closely, they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure out how they feel yeah. about a conflict. And then so the last one that I wanted to read um, was it's right at the very end. I'm like holding the mic and then also... <laughs> yeah, flipping pages. And... Yeah, yeah, I got all my bookmarks. <laughs> um, and it's just a very interesting, it's just a very interesting note 
you know, it comes like right near the end of the book, um, kind of around in the same area where um, it's, you know, basically it's like they think things are under control, but things are still falling apart. And now they just need to get home. They notice that there are um, raptors mating and nesting. So mm. they have to go make sure it's basically like this is the part that was never translated to the movie, which was like, oh, here all these dinosaurs are breeding. Well, we need to count them all so that when we destroy them all, mm-hmm. we need to make sure everything's taken care of. Um, as opposed to in the movie where they just are like, we got to get out of here. Yeah. Um, you know, Michael Crichton couldn't settle for being less than encouraging ethical responsibility when it comes to <laughs> taking care of your dinosaurs. Um. And so, um, and at the end of the book, Malcolm is in this very much like drugged out tranquilizer fever dream state where Mm -hmm. he's just, you know, kind of rambling about chaos and about the state of mankind and everyone's sort of shaking their heads, you know, not listening, but he always comes in with something poignant. Um, and so he's making this point of like, basically like humans are destroying the earth like that's kind of a hubristic thought that we have that kind of power um when we have control we never had control um um, and so malcolm says no my point is that life on earth can take care of itself in the thinking of a human being a hundred years is a long time a hundred years ago we didn't have cars and airplanes and computers and vaccines it was a whole different world but to the earth a hundred years is nothing a million years is nothing this planet lives and breathes on a much vaster scale we can't imagine its slow and powerful rhythms and we haven't got the humility to try we have been residents for here we have been residents here for a blink of an eye if we are gone tomorrow the earth will not miss us and we very mu- very mel- and we very whoa, and we very well might be gone. Hammond said, huffing. Yes, we might. So what are you saying? We shouldn't care about the environment? No, of course not. Then what? Malcolm coughed and stared into the distance. Let's be clear: the planet is not in jeopardy. We are in jeopardy. We haven't gotten the we haven't got the power to destroy the planet or save it, but we might have the power to save ourselves. So. When I first read that passage, it's like, yes, I agree, like, oh, the hubris of mankind to think that, like, we can bring this, like, great Mother Earth to an end just because of what we're scrabbling and doing on the surface. When what we're, when we say, like, the world's going to end, what we truly are saying is, like, our species is coming to an end. And what is one species in the grand scheme of the cosmos right but now that i know he's anti-climate change like this reads much less inspiring to me (laughs) yeah i agree i i also like having that knowledge about it knowing where he you know because that's kind of this common thread of like white male authors is that near the end of their lives, they all kind of get very cynical about humanity and then kind of Mm. are dismissive of it, you know, Mm -hmm. yet not even realizing that like they were capable of making such great change. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, because like their, their ability is limited, all of a sudden nobody else can do it. Yeah. And it, it it is kind of, um, it is kind of a bummer that, 
you know, I mean, again, we're, I mean, I'm only speaking to what I know and what I read. And when I met him, you know, it was kind of before all this stuff. But yeah, you're right. It, it does feel less inspired. It feels sort of more like giving up. Because what it really should be is like, we should acknowledge that nature is greater than us and humans in the grand scheme of things don't matter. Yes. But then that next thought should be, but we're all we have. So let's, let's be better. Let's do better. Let's take care of our planet and let's take care of each other. Like that should be the positive uplift. It shouldn't be like, we're nothing. So fuck everything and let's just all die like because <laughs> reading the lost world book which i don't know how familiar you are with the lost world book it feels much more new agey and mystical in that way mm-hmm. where jeff you know ian malcolm and jeff goldblum they're interchangeable um <laughs> where ian malcolm's character you know the lost world is essentially the same book as jurassic park it's like they go to an island shit goes wrong and then they kind mm-hmm. of just wait to get rescued without the kind of surprise of the fact that there is dinosaurs it's now it's now sort of like oh man we're back here again and ian malcolm gets injured again and is on horse tranquilizers or whatever and is sort <laughs> of you know sort of waxing poetically and but there is much more of a like you said like how earlier about michael crichton's life got more mystical i think I also think that the series kind of ends on a mystical note like that in that way where the lost world is very much like, wow, it's so cool that they're alive. Isn't it great to be alive? (laughs) And it feels like um, sort of it's sort of a direct opposition to not a direct opposition to this passage, but it's sort of like but at the same time, I think it doesn't it's not convincing enough for me to 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 for me to not feel the the downerness of this ending. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the point that maybe we were supposed, we can take away from it is like, just like how in creating Jurassic Park, we messed with genetics without knowing full the uh, consequences. Similarly, we should always keep in the back of our mind the idea of our, um, like smallness to guide every decision we make. Like, I don't know, like, like I can, I can internally kind of twist it into a more positive thing that fits more with what I believe is important, but it's, it's so odd to think like this author had held so many contradictions in him. And I guess that's what all writers and all people are like, right? We can, that's what's so amazing about humans is that we can hold two contradicting thoughts in our head and not explode from the logical fallacy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you're, yeah, that's really, that's really well said. And it just makes me think that like, Jurassic Park is almost this fable, you know, the books are some, mm. are almost like fables for scientists. Like a scientist mm-hmm. would read this and be like, oh, you know, I, I better get my act together, you know. <laughs> so I have one more passage, and I think this maybe speaks to where he finally ended up, at least in the realm of, of Jurassic Park and in this yes. world of dinosaurs. 
Um, so this is at the very end of the Lost World. They they're getting rescued. Malcolm has survived. The you know the good guys have survived. All the rival corporation people have been eaten alive by dinosaurs. Um, and they're on a boat and they're just floating towards safety. It's very like end of a James Bond movie, except, you know, without the sex, but it's just, they're kind of like floating kind of like everything's fine now and we're just waiting to be rescued. And so Malcolm of course is, you know, rambling on and, you know, saying very poignant things. And then this other character, Thorne, who's like the gruff, like mechanic scientist, who's like, you know, that's his vibe. And he says, are you listening to all that? I wouldn't take any of it too seriously. It's just theories. Human beings can't help making them. But the fact is, is that theories are just fantasies and they change. When America was a new country, people believed in something called phlogiston. You know what that is? No. Well, it doesn't matter because it wasn't real anyway. They also, <laughs> they also believe that four humors control behavior and that they believe the earth was only a few thousand years old. Now we believe the earth is four billion years old and we believe in photons and electrons and we think human behavior is controlled by things like ego and self-esteem. We think these beliefs are more scientific and better, aren't they? Thorne shrugged. They're still just fantasies. They're not real. Have you ever seen a self-esteem? Can you bring me one on a plate? How about a photon? Can you bring me one of those? No, Kelly shook her head no, but, and you never will because these things don't exist, no matter how seriously people take them. A hundred years from now, people will look back at us and laugh. They'll say, you know what people used to believe? They believed in photons and electrons. Can you imagine <laughs> anything so silly? They'll have a good laugh because by then there'll be newer and better fantasies. Uh, Thorne shook his head and said, and meanwhile, you feel the way the boat moves? That's the sea. That's real. You smell the salt in the air. You feel the sunlight on your skin. That's all real. You see all of us together. That's real. Life is wonderful. It's a gift to be alive, to see the sun and breathe the air. And there really isn't anything else. Now look at that compass and tell me where south is. I want to go to Porto Cortes. It's time for us all to go home. It's like so interesting that the guy who started this passion for science in such, like in I would say an entire generation of kids is also the guy that was telling us all along like but be careful or like you know that science innately is not good you know it always has to be paired with a more like I guess, ethics-minded thought. I don't know. Um, did you read the books? I did. I definitely read the books after the movies came out. Because I, I want to say that I read Jurassic Park after Lost World. And so I read the Crichtons afterwards. So did I, actually. Oh, okay, there we go. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Was there anything about the books that, like, struck you that or that surprised you especially kind of reading them in that reverse order. Yes, because Crichton seems to dislike a lot of people a lot more than Spielberg. Spielberg will treat certain characters who are greedy or self-centered or focused on money pretty badly in a like a one-time smack-across-the-face way. Like, I'm not going to torture you over the span of the movie, but you're going to get eaten by T-Rex really quickly in a toilet. It's very embarrassing. That's it. But, yeah, Crichton just, like, dragged some characters where it was like, oh, I'm not going to invest in your company. And it was like, and that character, like, got sued over the span of, like, seven months and stuff. So, yeah. And 
the care I don't know, I feel like the characters in the books like felt a little less friendly. Because I think anytime Crichton has a smart character, it's always like, you're smart. No one need you don't need other values. You're smart. <laughs> so that's kinda the Crichton go-to. I'm I'm a doctor. I don't have to like people. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing I always like think about. I was like, does Crichton love scientists or hate scientists? What a good question. What a good question. Does he love or hate scientists? And then also, or conversely, does he love or hate science? I feel like his parent, yeah, yeah. Does he love or hate? I feel like it's dependent on the experience that he's just had at the latest conference. And you can tell like the people he's met because it'll just be like, Dr. So-and-so, and it rhymes with like the speaker of the last conference he was at. And he's like, is a terrible thief. And you're like, oh my God, all right. You <laughs> clearly did not have a good dinner with this person. Was there anything from the book that you, you know, because the thing that I keep seeing, and it's so funny that like, you know, there was only two Jurassic Park novels. He only wrote Uh two, Uh wrote the second one, probably begrudgingly, because Steven Spielberg was (laughs) like, look, we want to make another movie. But if you if you make another book, then it'll sort of be legitimized, you know. Yeah. um, But I think it's interesting how how. um you know, now there's going to be, you know, next year there will be five Jurassic Park movies. And even though there's only been two books, somehow Michael Crichton's words from, especially from the original novel, keep appearing in all the later movies. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not only just words, but set pieces and ideas and characters kind of, it feels like it's like the original Jurassic Park is still this weird, like uh gold mine that, they that the new filmmakers kind of dig from still so Jurassic Park was the first Michael Crichton book that you read fairly certain yes uh yeah I think so and do you remember do you remember when you read it did you know that there was going to be a movie coming out for it or was it sort of that thing where you're like oh now there's this no I mean one of my nerd things that I get very um proud about super meaningless but it's like a kind of a nerd arrogance is that yeah i i read jurassic park before i knew there was going to be a movie and i also read all like all of the game of thrones books before there was even talk of a television show oh wow yeah i have a couple things like that ask me about it at length yeah i was gonna say so then did you were you because even at that age were, were you like did you notice the differences between the movie and the books? Did you, did you, what were your like kind of thoughts about that when it came yes, out? Yes. I actually had specific thoughts about it. You're, okay. you're jogging my memory. Um, I, I really didn't like how some, uh, Oh, how the discovery that the dinosaurs were multiplying was handled in the film because in the book, they do this very kind of, you know, what he's able to do in a book is describe the science of it and describe how, frogs can change sexes i believe that's that's what he talks about and how they had to use frog dna and the dinosaurs and in the book there's this chilling scene that isn't super cinematic because they're all hanging out in the control room and basically um they have uh counters on all the dinosaurs trackers rather and he goes uh search for the amount of dinosaurs that are supposed to be in the park bing that number comes up it's the correct number but then he's like tell the computer to search for one more than are supposed to be in the park. You know this scene. And then you're like, oh shit, there's there's one more. And then it's like, search for 10 more. And there are 10 more. I, I'm, 
I, I hope I'm getting this right, Steven. But like, and then it's just terrifying. And I think it's so much more exciting and terrifying that there's this like kind of computer glitch or like there's this like epitome of like how humans get things wrong, like in how they take their data. That is the crux of finding out that the dinosaurs are going nuts as opposed to what happens in the film, which is Sam Neill and the kids find an egg. Yeah, in the in the movie, the idea is more... It's more, like the the movie is more about the majesty that these things exist, and it sort of doesn't deal with the fallout of it. Where yeah, that scene is, and it's the way it's Michael, very thrilling and it's scary. I like it. Yeah, and it but it's funny because visually it's like you're reading a book and then all of a sudden there's a little graph. Yeah, and then like another paragraph and then like another graph, and you turn the page and you're like oh shit, and then it's like those numbers keep increasing in the. I guess they could have done it in the movie. I, I I understand it's not super cinematic. It's more people in a room having a conversation than it is like finding an, an a relic, a egg. You know, yeah. that's that's definitely more visually exciting for sure. It's funny rereading this book. You know, more as an adult, there's so much emphasis placed on the sort of like mystery surrounding the park itself rather than the dinosaurs coming back. It's almost like... Is it Isla Nublar? Yeah, Isla Nublar. Oh, I remember. Good. The, the island in the clouds or something like that. Yeah. And, um, it, the, you know, it's almost 100 pages before they actually see a dinosaur for the first time. It's oh, more yeah. about It's more about like, oh, this, like these children are being bitten off the coast of Costa Rica and it's, there's a specimen that's sent to a lab and there's like all these talk of lawyers being like, what's Hammond doing? It's all illegal. And then it's like, well, that's just good monster writing or that's good. Like science fiction writing, right? Because, uh, they'll teach you in every book about writing fantasy or science fiction, like to ladle out the fantastic parts slowly because otherwise it, I don't know. It's less fun. I really do uh, believe that there are books that like, in fantasy and science fiction that I like that just come at you guns blazing every weird thing at once. But in a book like this where you're moving from the real world into a fantasy they've created, you definitely have to kind of, yeah, there's a nice, there's a nice build too. I remember that too. And I, I remember, I think it's a testament to his writing that I was so young and I wanted to hear about the dinosaurs but I was still interested in all the corporate espionage and stuff like that. Yeah, all those bits of like you know the oh like Hammond's like ordering three Cray XMP computers and they're like what that's crazy yeah, like those are the biggest yeah computers it's yeah that that's the thing that I and it just in thinking even just rereading it like I sort of wonder and maybe this is a question we'll say for the end after just looking at a couple passages but it's like is the book Jurassic Park even about dinosaurs or is it about something greater I mean it's it's about um it's about genetics now or it's about science yeah it's about yeah. it's about it's about the cross-section of capitalism and science yeah for sure it definitely feels that way because they could have been robots you know evil you know robots that went amok or they could have been an alien dna that they found and recreated or, or anything like that
This has been episode four of See Jurassic Right. My guests on this week's episode and future episodes were Jared Logan. You can follow him on Twitter at Jared Logan. Sayan Kang. You can follow her on Twitter at Kang. Christina Nielsen. You can follow her on Twitter at It's the Wombat. And Omar Najam. You can follow him on Twitter at Omar Najam. While episode five drops one month from today, be on the lookout for a mini-show dropping next Tuesday. I'll be playing voicemails and reading emails sent in from listeners like you. Also be on the lookout for future mini-sodes and special segments as well. Now, I have two questions for you. If you want to tweet at me, call in, or leave a voicemail before next month's show, these questions are, are there any scenes left in the Jurassic Park books that you would want to see in future Jurassic Park movies? And would you ever want to see a remake of the original film that more closely follows the plot of the book? 65 million years of waiting Well, oh yeah Well, all right Well, oh yeah Now you can also interact with me and the show by following me on Twitter at Stephen Ray Morris and following SJRPod on Twitter, See Jurassic Right on Instagram, See Jurassic Right on Facebook, or you can send me an email at seejurassicright at gmail.com. Not only am I looking forward to talking to people about their Jurassic Park experiences and hearing yours, but I also am going to be sharing ephemera from my childhood and, oh God, I'm going to share the fan fiction uh, on there as well and pictures and toys and everything. It's going to be great. And I wanted to thank Caitlin Thompson and Tim Ruggery at ACAST, Molly McAleer, Heather Mason, Stephanie Cook, Sarah Iyer, and you. See Jurassic Ride is an ACAST podcast. Check out the show on their mobile app. And thank you for listening. Until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.